The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Amen, church. Remain standing with me this morning as we continue our reading through the 119th Psalm. This morning we're going to be in verses 57 through 64. This is the word of God. The Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. At midnight, I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. I am a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. And all God's people said, you may be seated. Would you pray with me? Father God, as your children... We recognize that what we need more than anything else to steady our hearts, to focus our minds, to sharpen our affections, to strengthen our faith. What we need more than anything else is to hear your voice, to see your glory, and to be changed. So, Father, we gather not as a people this morning looking to learn some information. We don't gather as a people today seeking to build a knowledge base or merely, Father, to enter into an exercise of theology. Father God, we gather as a people desperately in need of an opportunity to meet with you. We praise you that week after week, this is the pattern that you have set for us. That while all of life is meant to be worship, while every act from the most mundane to the most terrifying, that all of life is meant to be be lived in absolute sense of dependent worship, that, Father, there's something special about these weekly gatherings. We praise you for it. We thank you, Father, that the requirement for us to come into this place is not perfection, that it is in no way dependent upon us, that it is all bound up in your son, Jesus Christ, and his accomplished work. So, Father, as we come to your word this morning, I pray that he would remain our only hope, that he would come into sharper focus as a result of what we see and what we hear here this morning, that our confidence would grow, that our assurance would grow, that our faith would grow, that we would be strengthened as we step out of this place into a dark and oftentimes unforgiving world. Father God, we trust that you will do this. We ask it in the name of your Son and for the sake of your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we return this morning to our verse by verse. I say verse by verse. We're really moving word by word, aren't we? Our word by word study of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. 
Now, you'll recall that when we gathered last two weeks ago, that we spent the majority of our time seeking to answer the question, what does Paul mean by the phrase, in Christ? In Christ. This is the Apostle Paul's very favorite declaration with regards to the Christian. More than 150 times by my account, as we look through all the letters of Paul, we find him over and over and over again. Anytime he references the Christian. Anytime he directs our hearts towards all the promises that God has for his children, they're always bound up in that singular phrase, in Christ. In Christ. You see, a Christian is not merely a man standing on the outside. We don't just look to Jesus Christ from a distance and believe on him. We believe based on the word of scripture that by faith we are joined to him. In such a real sense that he can say that we are in Christ. Now, there's going to be plenty more opportunities as we work through even just this first chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. There's going to be plenty more opportunities for us to dig a bit deeper, for us to try and more fully unpack what it is that Paul means by that phrase. But, and I'm so very thankful for that opportunity because it's impossible for me. It's impossible in one sermon or two sermons, frankly, in a million sermons. It's impossible for us to get to the end of that reality. What does it mean for you to be in Christ? My prayer for you all week. I left this place. I wasn't with you last Sunday morning. I was at the beach. And there at the beach, as I thought about you and I prayed for you and, I, and, and my heart was, was still in communion with you as you gathered here in worship, my prayer for you then was let the people know what it means to be in Christ. It was important to Paul. It's important to me. It's important to God that you understand that this is the radical nature of your new identity. You are in Christ. That's the basis for your hope. It's the only way in which God can not only forgive you, but bestow upon you these infinite and eternal blessings that you are in Christ. Your life, your identity, your direction, your only hope, everything that your life points towards, it is in this you are found in Christ. That whenever God thinks of you, in fact, whenever God has thought of you from eternity past, he always saw you as a man or a woman in Christ before the very foundation of the world, that according to the purposes, according to the mind, according to the will of God, you are already united to Christ in such a deep and real and abiding way that everything that can be said of Christ is said of you, that all that he has earned, that all that he deserves, they're all bound up in this reality, you're in Christ. Not as some reward because of your faith in him, that's what so many Christians believe. They see faith as a way in which we, we bring ourselves before God and we say, God, haven't we been a good boy? We believed in this one that you told us to believe in and now reward us. Reward us because of our faith. That's not what scripture has to say to us. It's because of his incomparable grace. A grace which comes from eternity past and stretches off into eternity history. Again, I say before the foundations of the world, God has seen you in Christ. And so you need not look to yourselves. You need not be, need not be constantly grading yourself always worrying about your performance or even the strength of your own faith. If your only hope is in Christ, if the basis for all that is good in this life and all that God has for you is bound up in your identity in Christ, then our eyes must always be drawn to Christ. This frees us from this constant neurotic, neurotic sense of, of self-evaluation, all the time looking at ourselves in the mirror, wondering, are we good enough? Is our faith strong enough? Do we seem holy enough? And we're reminded that the grounding of all these things, they are found in him. Therefore, our eyes should be drawn to Christ. 
So again, I say, if God wills, we'll have many more opportunities to touch on this reality, but I do pray that you'd meditate on it. There was a group within our church that I learned over the last couple of weeks, they spent the time and they read through all of Paul's letters and just seeking to draw their mind and their hearts towards this phrase or versions of this phrase or the hints of this phrase that are found all throughout his letters. And I trust that God's transformed them through this. I trust that their worship has been formed by this as their hearts swelled with the realization that they are truly in Christ. But for this morning, I direct your attention to those last few words there in this third, cha- uh, third verse excuse me, of the first chapter. Those words, in the heavenly places. Paul says that we are to bless God. We are to praise God because he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's the question we seek to answer this morning. What does the Apostle Paul mean by that phrase, in the heavenly places? So with that, I ask you to return to your feet, please. We continue on working through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We're still in the first chapter. We'll read this morning verses 3 through 14. This is the perfect, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, authoritative word of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all insight, wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. All God's people said, amen, you may be seated. Father God, would you make this book live to me? In it, would you show me yourself? Would you show me myself? Would you show me my Savior? Would you make this book live to me? It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So before we try and unpack what Paul means by this phrase in the heavenly places, this place in which he says that we have been given every spiritual blessing, I think we first need to remind ourselves what does Paul mean by that phrase spiritual blessings. You see, we were only able to touch on it ever so briefly during our last gathering. Spiritual blessings. Surely Paul wants initially for our minds to be drawn to that third member of the blessed trinity. Surely Paul seems to be anxious He seems to have this urgency about making sure that our minds do not forget that it is by the Holy Spirit, that the playing, that the part that the Holy Spirit plays in bringing all of this to us, these blessings, these blessings that are given to us according to the sovereign will and decree of God. 
These blessings that are ours in Christ, they come to us by the working of the Holy Spirit. Now Paul's wasting no time here. Before he enumerates and unpacks all that these blessings are, he wants us to recognize the perfect unity in the Godhead. One will, one purpose, one accord. All things coming to us from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. All things returning by the Spirit, through the Son, to the Father. The triune God working in seamless unity to carry apart his sovereign plan. His perfect designs, all working towards one, one will, one end, one purpose. Now we're going to find this flow all throughout Paul's writing. We'll especially find it here in these verses 3 through 14 of Ephesians chapter 1. We'll find here the Father, the Son, the Spirit, each working in accordance with his own personal property, but each working towards the same goal. We see the Father working as the one who is eternally unbegotten. We see the Son as the one who has been begotten by the Father. We see the Spirit as the one who proceeds both from the Father and from the Son, each working in a manner that is fitting with his person, and yet all working towards the same end all working to bring about God's good and perfect plan for the redemption of his people. And so we see that these blessings, they are spiritual. They are spiritual because they are mediated to us, coming to us from God, through the Son, found in the Son, but coming by work of the Spirit. But I think we can go a step further. I think that what Paul has in mind here is something more than just the way in which God bestows these blessings to us. It seems to me like he's speaking about the very nature of these blessings when he calls them spiritual. These are a particular kind of blessing for a peculiar kind of people. These are a blessing that are unique just to the Christian, just to those who are found in Christ. You'll recall that we spent a whole lot of time during our, really during all of our time throughout our study so far, this book, book of Ephesians, that we spent a lot of time asking, to whom is Paul writing? To whom has God promised that he's given these spiritual blessings? And you'll recall that we've determined that it is, in fact, the saints, the Christian, those who are in Christ. These are spiritual blessings for a spiritual people. You see, there are some, spiritual, or there are some blessings excuse me, that God has given to the whole of the world. We often call these common graces. We recognize pretty quickly as we look around us and as we study Scripture, we recognize pretty quickly that God has been working, that he is working. He continues to work in magnificent ways for the good of all mankind, even those who hate God. Even those who scoff at the idea of bowing their knee in worship to Christ. Even those who will live the whole of their lives in rebellion to God and die in their sins. That they wake up each and every day and find themselves under a fountain of God's unmerited favor. They continue to eat from the hand of the God whom they reject. John Murray, he speaks of these blessings of common grace like this. He says that they are every favor of whatever kind or degree falling short of salvation which this undeserving and sin-cursed world enjoys at the hand of God. Every portion of this gift called life, given and preserved for a people who hate God, for a people who deserve nothing but death. And we speak of this often on Wednesday night, don't we? You can't read through the scriptures without seeing this, that the God of the universe, that he is giving good gifts not only to his children, but the children of the devil. Not only those who are dedicated to a life of worshiping him, but to those who mock his name. We see this in the fact that he restrains evil. Restrains evil in the hearts of men. Restrains evil in this world. It's the only thing that makes this world livable. We see this in the patterns of day and night and seasons and rain. We see it in the fact that gravity still keeps us pinned to this earth. We see it in the fact that every time we take a breath, the air that we breathe provides us oxygen rather than poison. 
We see it in food and health and families and jobs and vacations and sharp minds that are used to build things and to invent things and to advance society. These blessings are given by God even to the vilest of sinners. In fact, if you look around, what you'll find oftentimes is that he gives them an even greater measure to the lost. Oftentimes, these common graces, money, health, wealth, prosperity, he gives these to those who despise him most. So as a Christian, we look around and we shake our head. We shake our head at a world that despises God while they swim in his goodness, enjoying the riches from his hand while mocking at the idea that anyone would ever thank him, anyone would ever repent of their sins and turn to him in faith. Completely neglecting the fact, completely obstinate to the fact, these good gifts, every good and perfect gift that comes from God is intended is a thing to draw him to repentance, to draw him to give thanks. And when you really stop and give it some thought, you, you can't help but recognize how truly remarkable this is. The absolute ingratitude of man. Not just the lost, but the Christian as well. How we eat from the hand of God and then grumble about what he hasn't given us. How everything that we receive in this life comes from the hand of God and yet look around, at us, look around us at others and are frustrated they don't treat us in some better way. So it should drive the Christian to cry out for mercy. It should drive us to cry out to God and ask him, God, would you forgive me? Would you give me a heart of gratitude, a heart of thanksgiving, a heart of praise in light of all these gifts that you have given me? It should drive us to wonder, how much longer will this God abide with such ungrateful people? Surely if it were not for his promise to Noah, he would have flooded this place again. And so we look and this drives us. It does, it drives us. It drives us to repentance, it drives us to faith, it drives us to worship, it drives us to thanksgiving. But for the world, for those who are spiritually dead, for the natural man, he's completely unable and unwilling to honor God or to give thanks to him. He praises only himself. He seeks only to build monuments to himself and to his own greatness giving nothing but a passing thought to God. Again, I say having no clue that the kindnesses of God are meant to lead him to repentance. They're living in outright rebellion to the king while they continue to eat food from his table, not recognizing that every single morsel they receive is going to stand against them in condemnation, not realizing that every good gift they receive from this God, that when all is said and done, it will be crying out against them as a witness. You received my good gifts, you ate from my hand. I sustained your life, and you continued to rebel. You continued to reject. Dear children, I promise you, there will be many who stand in that final day of judgment. They will recognize just the mountain of wrath they have stored up for themselves, specifically because of these good gifts that have come from the hand of God. Now, because these blessings, because these blessings all come to us, they are gracious gifts of God, and they come to us by the work of the Spirit, they may rightly be classified in the broadest sense. We may rightly call these spiritual blessings. But this can't be what Paul means here. Again, he's writing to the Christian. And yes, the Christian receives these same kind of common grace, these common blessings, these blessings that are common to all of mankind. And yes, by the special grace of God, by the saving grace of God, we're able to receive them as an act of worship. He has led us to give him thanks for these. We find opportunity in these very same gifts to praise God. You see, the Christian man, he can sit down with his wife and his children and enjoy a steak dinner and have his heart drawn to heaven, have his heart directed towards the one who has provided it all. What he finds is that these very same common graces, 
these very same gifts from God that leave the reprobate lost, that store up greater wrath for him on the day of judgment, that it draws us into closer communion with God, that we receive these with a heart of thanksgiving and, and joy and gratitude towards him. But Paul doesn't seem to just be speaking about the manner in which we receive these blessings. Again, I say he seems to have something in mind with regards to the nature, these spiritual blessings. There's something about them that are different from the common graces, from the everyday blessings that God bestows upon all of mankind. It seems, again, I say as though he's speaking about a particular kind of blessing, a blessing that comes only to the saint, to the Christian, to those who are in Christ. Now, as we walk through this text together, we've already read it once this morning, I guess I think this is our 10th week together in this book of Ephesians. So we've read this several times. We've read through this passage. Surely you see the, the way in which Paul unfolds some of these spiritual blessings for us. We find him here talking about being chosen by God that we should be holy and blameless. That we are predestined by God for adoption to himself. That we were raised to life by God with Christ. That we were redeemed by God from slavery to sin. That we were forgiven by God for our trespasses. That we were granted by God knowledge of his plan to unite all things in Christ. That we have received from God an eternal inheritance. That we have been sealed by God with his Holy Spirit. So immediately you, you come to this, you can't help but come to this concept that there's a purpose in all this. There's an aim, there's a unity, there's, a, there, there's something that all these gifts have in common. They're all leading towards one goal. That there's a purpose in this blessing. That while these common these common graces, these gifts of God that are bestowed on all of mankind, they just leave man lost. They leave man separated from God. They leave man under his judgment. That there's an end for this. That these graces, these gifts of God, these spiritual blessings, they're actually leading a man towards something. They're carrying him to God. Again, I say the, the common grace of God, these everyday gifts, they'll leave man lost. The unregenerate, the non-believing, he just stores up for himself wrath for the day of judgment. And these, these gifts, they cannot save him. But the truth of the matter is they cannot save us. Because man, as we are in Adam, we have always chosen the gift over the giver. We too have rebelled. And what is needed in us is a new heart. What is needed in us is repentant faith. What is needed of us is a union in Christ. And these gifts will not lead us here. There must be something more. There must be something that can create in us a new heart. That can replace our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. They can bring us to a point of faith. They can join us to Jesus Christ for all eternity. That there must be something more than this if we're going to be found in salvation. And so that's what Paul seems to be speaking of. When he talks here in the book of Ephesians about these spiritual blessings, you ask yourself, what is the end of it all? To what are these things directing us? And you find pretty quickly that these spiritual blessings, they are given that God might be glorified as he accomplishes his good purpose, as he accomplishes all that must be done to unite rebellious sinners to himself. These spiritual blessings, they make it possible. More than this, they assure that those whom God has chosen, they will come into glory with Christ. That he has done everything that needs to be done from eternity past, stretching into eternity future. That he has done everything that needs to, needs to happen so that we might not only be united to Christ, but that we may live holy and blameless lives today as we look forward to that day of his return. We look forward to that day of final glory in his eternal presence. So surely you recognize the monumental difference between these kinds of blessings. God feeds us all. Up to this moment, he has healed us all, but it's only his chosen people, only the saints, only the lacks, only they receive these spiritual blessings. All that is necessary to remove God's wrath from us and bring us to saving faith, to truly cherish him.
God's done all that he must do to secure his children for all eternity. And in these spiritual blessings, again, I say we find that he's equipped us for a life of holiness now and a life of pure joy in his presence forever. And so it it struck me. We're fixing to get into some really deep doctrine in the coming weeks. We've We've, we've touched on it as we've worked through these first three verses and surely as your eyes have scanned down the page and you've prepared your own hearts for us to walk through this text together, we're going we're gonna to get into some, some very challenging doctrines as we start talking about things like predestination, what it means to be chosen in Christ. I used the word elect earlier and these things, they can immediately, they can cause anxiety in our chest even though we stand here as the people that call ourselves the saints, those who have been chosen, those who are among the elect, those who call ourselves Christian. We have this fear in us that it can be somehow offensive to the world. It can be offensive to the lost that we say, no, 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 no. These spiritual blessings, they are only for those whom God has chosen to bestow them. They are not for the world at large. We fear that this might be offensive to them. Frankly, sometimes it's offensive to us. But the more I meditate about this, the more I think about this, the more I read what God's word has to say about this, the more I realize that the world Those who are outside of Christ, they have no desire for these blessings anyway. We don't withhold from them. God does not withhold from them something they are desperately crying out for. Do you understand what I'm saying? These spiritual blessings, they are meant to unite a man to God. They are meant to bring a man into Christ and in which he's going to live out a life of holiness and worship and praise and then enjoy the presence of God for all eternity. Will this entail tangible things, food and clothing and other physical blessings? Absolutely, but their ultimate end, the very purpose for which God gives these spiritual blessings is to reconcile the sinner to himself in Christ. And the natural man, he simply does not desire this. Natural man, he hears about the gospel of Jesus Christ. He hears all the things that I've just promised you are yours in Christ, and they're absolute foolishness to him. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.14 that the natural man does not accept the things that are of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. You see, the natural man, the man who has only been born in Adam, he does not accept, he does not receive, he does not welcome, he cannot even understand these spiritual things. Don't you see? The natural man, he only wants the physical gifts. The natural man, he only wants the tangible things. The natural man, he does not want the things of eternity. He wants the things of earth. And so natural man is genuinely confounded by us. We make no sense to him. We believe in a God that cannot be seen. We trust in a Christ who died like a sinner, died like an evil criminal for sins that he did not commit. We follow after a savior. We call him a king who never owned a parcel of land, never accumulated any money, didn't even have a wife and biological children. We give our life to a man like this and we then carry out in our lifetime this, it's almost like we're, we're playing a different game. We're not caught up with all the same treasures that they're chasing after. We seem completely oblivious to some of the things that they give their life to. We seem much less con- much less consumed by the temporal things like money and reputation. Whether we have much or whether we have little, they find us always giving thanks to him for what we have received. What we receive brings us to a sense of joy and and an act of worship, and then we freely give of it. We don't hold on to it. We don't hoard it. We seem irresponsible to them with the loose way that we hold God's gifts that he's given us. And then we call out to each other. 
We gather in a place like this, and week after week, I look to you and I say, dear brother, suffering's coming. Prepare and count it as joy. We call out to each other to lay down our lives, even physically if that's what it takes, to lay down our lives and die for the sake of this gospel. They think we're insane. They call this nothing but foolishness. And then we invite them to do the same. We say, dear brothers, don't settle for the trinkets. Don't settle for the morsels. These are just the tip of the iceberg. These are just the tiniest of shows of God's kindness and God's goodness and God's grace. There's so much more to be had if you'll just come and believe in Christ. If you'll turn from your sin and you'll trust in him. If you'll stop holding on to these things so tightly. If you won't make this world your God. If you'll stop trying to build a kingdom for yourself, you'll in inherit an eternal kingdom. We invite them to join us in all of this. We promise them that no matter how evil they have been, no matter how vile their heart, if they will repent and trust in Christ, that they will find themselves welcomed by him. We tell them that the end of this thing, that the goal in all of this is not to accumulate anything today, but it's to be found in Christ with the promise of eternity. But these things are completely unattractive to them. To the natural man, he does not and he cannot desire these spiritual things. He does not and he cannot find them attractive. Again, What's attractive about this to the natural man? Dear brother, you can be found as holy. You can be reconciled to God. You can be forgiven of your sins. Natural man hears these things and says, for what? He has no desire of God. At least not the God of the Bible. And certainly not if it's going to cost him what Christ says it will cost him. You have no desire for God, not today and not in eternity. These blessings, these spiritual blessings, they're repulsive to them. As a matter of fact, it's offensive to them. They would tell these men that they should desire such a thing. So we must ask ourselves, in what way would the lost man, the unregenerate man, the natural man possibly find these things attractive? In what way would these spiritual blessings be appealing to them? So that when we go out and we share this gospel, we preach to men and we call them to let loose of the things of this world and look to Christ as their only hope. We should not be shocked when the vast majority of them, they reject it, outright reject it. They call us insane and closed-minded to long for such a thing. But the reality is that they won't and they cannot unless God gives them spiritual eyes to see. Unless he reaches into their chest, removes their heart of stone, and gives them a heart of flesh. Unless he calls them to spiritual life, they will have no genuine and abiding desire for any of these things. May they play around with them at times? Absolutely, but only because they see them as a means to some other ends. That's what makes this whole thing crazy, don't you understand? That's what makes what we're about to study in the coming weeks so very challenging. Because what I'm going to say to you is that God offers these spiritual blessings, and the only people that will ever receive them, the only people that will ever desire them, are those whom God has chosen to give them to in eternity past. The spiritual blessings cause you to want the spiritual blessings. Do you understand? They're efficacious, completely efficacious. They always reach their appointed end. Everyone that God has given these spiritual blessings to thirst for these spiritual blessings. They will all desire them. They will always long for them. They will always find themselves dissatisfied by anything this world has to offer. Confession time. I had a hard week. Hard week, man. For no reason. For absolutely no reason. I got to spend three nights hanging out in Matagorda with my girls. 
without a care in the world. It's a good setup. You show up, you put on a bathing suit, and you don't think about anything else. You eat, you lay on the beach, you drive a Jeep and a golf cart around. It's good, man. It's a good life. And then I come back here, and you people told me how much you missed me. Got to go lunch with a brother. It's a good life. And I was miserable the whole week. And I cannot help but think as I stand on the back side of this week, as I prepared my heart to gather with you this morning, as I prepared my heart to come to this table, I couldn't help but realize that the reason was because I tasted those earthly things as good as they were and I'd allowed them to become the thing. Do you understand? Does that mean I don't go taste the good things? No, 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 I do. But I make sure that every time I taste them, every time I touch them, every time God gives them to me, I never allow my heart to stop there. And so as hard as this week was, I take this as an evidence that I'm really a Christian because those things couldn't satisfy. So everyone that God has chosen, everyone that God has bestowed these blessings to, they will long for these blessings at the same time. At the same time, the natural man, he will never cry out for them. You see, there's never a man, I say, that is calling out to God and saying, God, would you forgive me? Would you bestow these blessings? Would you welcome me into your kingdom? Would you forgive me of my sins? Would you adopt me of your son? God, I desperately more than anything else want to be found in Christ, to which he says, no, 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 not you. Man simply cannot want these things unless God stirs up within them the desire for these things. All who ask, they will receive. But it is only those who have received that will ask. Don't worry, I don't understand it either. But the natural man, even those who know all the things about God, even those who show evidence at times that they are, in fact, longing after eternity with Christ, even those showing at times that they're willing to let loose of the things of this world, natural man will never see God as anything more than a means to some other ends. He may seek forgiveness in the sense that he no, does not want to feel the sense of condemnation that is upon him. He may seek forgiveness in the sense that he does not like the thought that he may be standing before God as judge and thrown into the pits of hell, but he does not long for God he tips his hat towards him as a thanks for the things that he has given him he may bow his head and ask him for the things that he doesn't yet have but he simply wants the stuff that God can give and the sad reality is that God will give him much of this people come to me and they they say I want to give my life to Christ and I ask them well, what do you want about Christ I'm not trying to be coy with them what is your desire what is your hope why are you looking to Christ? And oftentimes what you'll find is they find Christ as a conduit to something else. And I don't say this, but what I think in my mind and what I most desperately want to say to them, oh, you want money? You want health? You want a family? You want wealth? Dear brothers, you don't need repentance to receive these things. Haven't you heard? God gives them to all. God will give them the things that they desire. And sadly, those very same things will haunt them for all eternity. So these are the spiritual blessings, gracious gifts of God wherein he has glorified himself by choosing a people for himself, bringing these people to salvation, equipping them with everything they need to live lives of holiness before him, and then fitting them for an eternity of unending pleasures in his presence. 
And God says that these blessings have been given to us. All have been given to us in Christ and in the heavenly places. What does that mean? So by my count, this adjective heavenly, it's used just 15 times in the New Testament. You find it often, actually, in the book of Hebrews. We hear the author there talking about a heavenly calling, heavenly gifts, a heavenly country, a heavenly city. And more often than not, this phrase seems to be used to contrast the heavenly with the earthly. The heavenly with the temporal, the, the, the lesser, the earthly things, those things which are passing away. The earthly Jerusalem, the earthly sacrifices, the earthly temple, the earthly high priest. That all these things were shadows and copies and images and pointers pointing forward to the real. There were shadows of the substance. That those things were passing away. And yet, that those things had served their purpose. That the purpose in those things was not that a man would stop there, but that he would see beyond them. He would recognize that these things cannot give me what I truly need. There must, therefore, be something greater to come. They would believe in the promises of God. But again, just as with those other common graces that are given in this world, man stops there. Natural man stops there because these things are tangible. We can see them. We can taste them. We can touch them. We feel at times as though we can control them. And therefore, these men were in great danger of completely missing the substance for the shadow because they had stopped there. So it seems to me as though heavenly things, they are the greater, the eternal, the more lasting, the real substance to which the earthly and the temporal and the lesser things point forward. They're things that can only be perceived by the spiritual man. They can only be perceived by those who God has given eyes to see that they can look beyond the things and to the substance. That that's what God means by heavenly things. But what about heavenly places? Well, this phrase is only used in Paul's writing. As a matter of fact, as best I can tell, it's only used here in the book of Ephesians and five times. We find it here in this morning's text in Ephesians 1.3. We find it a second time still in this first chapter in Ephesians 1.20. Paul is offering a prayer on behalf of the people that God would enlighten the eyes of their heart. They might recognize the greatness of God's immeasurable power towards his saints. Paul says that this is the same power and might by which he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So the heavenly places is where Christ is. The heavenly places is where Christ has ascended and he sits down at the right hand of the Father to rule and reign today. Now I want to skip over. The next place that we come to this phrase heavenly places is found in chapter 2. We're going to come back to that one. I reserve the right. Go on to chapter 3. We find in Ephesians 3 verse 10. Paul speaks about the mystery of the gospel which has been made known to him. The reality that believing Gentiles along with believing Jews are heirs to all of this all that God has promises, that, that through the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God is reconciling a people to each other, he is reconciling those people to himself, and that there is no, no separation any longer, no wall of division based on bloodlines, based on gender, based, based on freedom or slavery, based on anything else, that God has broken all this down, he's uniting a singular people to himself. And he says here in Ephesians 3.10 that God's purpose in all this was so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So it says that God is saving us, that there's an end for this. There's a purpose for these blessings that he pours upon us. There's a purpose for his grace. It's not just to save us. It's not just to reconcile us. It's to make an announcement, a proclamation, to reveal to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places his wisdom and his power and his goodness. So, because we read that Christ Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places, we might 
be tempted to think that heavenly places is just another way of speaking about heaven, like heaven proper, like where we think we go, where we know we go once we leave this life and go to be in the presence of God. And therefore, we might be tempted to assume that these rulers and these authorities, these are either redeemed saints or perhaps these are his holy angels. But I I don't think that's correct. Look to the last use of heavenly places. It's found in chapter 6. Ephesians 6, verse 12. This is a, probably a more well-known verse to most of you. I'll begin in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand the schemes of the devil. Excuse me, stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Do you see this? So we're at war. Ephesians 2 tells us that while we were dead in our sins and trespasses, we followed the prince of the power of the air. Those of you that have gathered with us on Wednesday night, you'll remember we spent much time talking about the fact that in the Garden of Eden, what happened was man sided with Satan over God. Man did not believe in the wisdom of God. Satan doubted the wisdom of God. Satan caused man to doubt the wisdom of God, and he led him in rebellion. That man sided with the devil. He sided with the enemy against God. That that's the state of all fallen man. But that having been brought to life, as we read in Ephesians 2, that God has brought us to life, that he has reconciled us to God, that in that moment, now we're at war with the devil. Having been reconciled and reunited to God, we are now at war with the devil. What Paul says here is that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, We don't wrestle against just the things of this world, not against the physical and earthly enemies, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Seems to me that Paul is getting a bit poetic here and really pointing to the same general enemy, the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers and present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places, that these are the demonic enemies of God. So how does this work? We read that Christ Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places. We read that there are rulers and authorities there, rulers and authorities that we're at war with, spiritual forces of darkness, enemies of God, that they are also in the spiritual, excuse me, the heavenly places. How does this work? And who is in charge? When, When I was a kid, I had this idea that what we had was we had a good God called God and we had a bad God called Satan and that there was a contest going on even today to see who's going to win who's going to rule heaven who's going to rule earth who's going to rule the air but if we look to Colossians chapter 2 you don't have to turn there I'll read it but it's it's very similar to Ephesians chapter 2 actually we read there Paul talking about the fact that we who are once dead in our sins have been raised to life have been reconciled to him in Christ and he, he says there that he's canceled the record of record of our debt and the punishment that comes with it. Verse 14, that he set it aside by nailing it to the cross, that there he disarmed the rulers and authorities, putting them to open shame by triumphing over them in evil. Do you see this? These same rulers and authorities, he has put them to shame. Not only has he pronounced to them that in Christ Jesus the victory has been won, but he takes away their only weapon against us. What can they use against us? Our sin. The sin that we have deserving of death the guilt and the shame and the condemnation that is due to us for our sin. And by nailing that to the cross, he overthrows, he puts them to open shame. He says, you no longer have a real weapon. You have been defeated. You have been publicly and eternally defeated. You have no longer anything with which you can beat these people. 
that you can tempt these people, that you can, that you can shame and, and, and bring scorn against these people. Are you following me? So God removed the hostility between men and himself. He reconciled men to each other and then reconciled them to himself specifically so that he could pronounce his victory over these rulers, these evil spiritual rulers and authorities. He triumphed over the enemy. He put them to shame. And so wherever these spiritual places are, it is where Christ Jesus is seated and where he reigns even over these rulers and authorities. This is exactly what we see back in chapter one. Go back to chapter one again. We read there in verse 20 that God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. I stopped there. But read verse 21 because he is there far above all rule and authority. Same words, isn't it? Rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. Does this include earthly powers and rulers and authorities? Oh, you bet. But spiritual as well. That the enemy has been defeated and therefore he is under the feet of Jesus Christ. That Christ rules over him in the spiritual pl- in the heavenly places. So it seems to me as though these heavenly places, as Paul uses this phrase in the book of Ephesians, it's not only a place where God's blessed presence is most fully known. It's not, not heaven proper as we think about it, but it's the whole of the spiritual realm. It's the place in which all that is unseen is taking place, where the true battle is, where the true battle takes place, that our enemies are not here on the earth. Our true enemy is in the spiritual realm, in the heavenly places. It's a different realm altogether, and yet more real in many ways than that which we can see and taste and touch. The realm which... The natural man gives no thought to whatsoever. Yet the place in which we must be aware that there's a true battle raging for our souls. A place where things are more lasting, more real than even that which is physical. So the question is, what does this mean for us? You're supposed to tell people, so what? That's what they tell you in preacher school. I haven't actually been to preacher school, but people that have been to preacher school, they tell me that you're supposed to tell them, so what? You don't just tell them some stuff. You tell them, so what? Well, so what? Well, go back to chapter 2. I skipped over that verse. Ephesians 2, verse 6, Paul talks about the spiritual condition of man. They are spiritually dead, alienated, following the prince of the power of the air, that they are sons of disobedience, they are following the lust and the desire of their mind and of their flesh, enemies of God. We read in verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Dear friends, this is what Paul was driving towards. The prayer that Paul offered earlier, the prayer that I've offered for you for these last two weeks, it is summed up in this, that you would know and receive and believe and live like this were true. Has there ever been a man that knew more a man living on the earth that knew more about the heavenly places than the Apostle Paul. He is a man who has been caught up in Christ into the third heaven. He is a man who God has used by the working of the Spirit. He has used to pull back the veil to heaven and show us the eternal purpose, the, the cosmic nature of our salvation. And he wants us more than anything else to see this, to take the things that he has seen and to pour them into our heart because he knows that that's what you need. That's where the victory is won. That's where we stay strong. That's how we endure to the end when we recognize this reality that we are caught up with Christ into the heavenly places. That Jesus Christ is won. The victory has been decided. Christus victor. There is no battle that he has not won. There is no doubt about how this, how this war will end. 
that Jesus Christ has won. He has defeated and put put to shame our enemies, even the devil, that he reigns on high today above all rulers and authorities, with all dominion and power and authority and all else. He reigns today from heaven. But he doesn't stop there because it says that he does not reign alone. He is not seated alone. That by the mysterious working of God in ways that we cannot comprehend, that by our union with Christ, because we are in Christ, that we too, even now, are seated with him in the heavenly places. Do you understand this? That in Christ Jesus, you reign today. I saw some of your eyes. That sounds blasphemous, doesn't it? It would be if it wasn't true. That while your body is here, that we, while you are the saints who are in Ephesus, you are the saints who are in Crosby, while you still wait for the redemption of your body, while you still battle with sin, while you feel nothing like a victor whatsoever, while you don't find, you don't find yourself feeling like a king who is reigning, a man who is seated at the right hand of the Father, yet that's exactly what Scripture says, that you are united in Christ in such a real way that even now spiritually you are with him. You are seated with him. And that the purpose in this is so that in eternity to come, he may bestow upon you the riches of his kindness. You know what that tells me, dear friends? It's going to take eternity. It's not a day's worth of blessings. It's not a millennia worth of blessings. It is infinite and eternal blessing, day after day after day of blessings from the hand of God, always in Christ to the glory of Christ, that it will always be an act of grace. We will never forget exactly why we are there. We will never forget that it's only in Christ that we have any presence there. We have any opportunity to stand there and receive these blessings from the hand of God. Verse 7 said, so that, we, so that in the coming ages he might show to us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Sounds an awful lot like every spiritual blessing, doesn't it? Sounds a lot like he's talking about the same kind of thing. That there's a reality in which those blessings have been given to us fully today. They have been given They're secure. They're ours right now. Right now we are seated in heaven with Christ. And yet at the same time, there's a reality in which they're unveiled to us throughout eternity, which we receive them, in which we we recognize them, we experience them, we enjoy them as time plays out. He brings them to us in our greatest time of need. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I read something he wrote this week. He said that the saints in heaven are surely happier than us, but they're in no way more secure. Let me read it again. The saints who are in heaven are surely happier than us, but they are in no way more secure. Dear children, these spiritual blessings, they are just as much yours as they are the saints sitting in heaven today. They are no more secure in their eternity. They are no more secure in their salvation. They are no more secure in their presence before God than you are today. But they are happier because they are no longer harassed and exhausted and discouraged by this world. Could we live like a people that believes that our eternity is secure? Could we live like a people that believes that we truly have been given all spiritual blessings? Is that not then the key to happiness? Is the key to happiness then not living like a man who has been seated with Christ in the heavenly places? Is it not then to have our hearts and our minds and our hopes directed to this place where this treasure trove of infinite blessings is already ours? This sounds like preacher talk. 
This sounds like mumbo jumbo. It sounds like I'm just telling you, just believe in something, a mist, a vapor, a thing off there in the distance someday. But apparently it can be done. Apparently the apostle Paul wants you to be in that place more than anything else. He wants you to live and think and worship and pray and resist sin and walk in holiness like a man who has already been seated in the heavenly places. A man who has already received these spiritual blessings. Knowing exactly how difficult it is. Knowing how harassed we are. Knowing how hard it is to be a saint in Ephesus while also being in Christ. Knowing how hard it is to have your body here in Crosby, Texas while being spiritually with Christ in the heavenly places. Dear brothers, you must know that Christ Jesus has been here. He has suffered the harassment. He has suffered the weight of sin in this world, not his own. The difference is that he left heaven to come to earth. He condescended. He condescended for good reason that he could return to heaven with you. He could earn your spot there. You must see this. that our only hope is to keep our eyes fixed there. And I, I do this every week. I say I'm going to end on time, and I don't. I think what struck me this morning as I prepared, as we prepared to come together to the table and as I prayed with, with, the, with the deacons, as we prepared to, to come and, and serve here this morning, I, I think the thing that struck me is this. The thing that makes this so difficult to grasp is, again, I say, because it sounds like I'm talking in, in, in double terms. I'm, I'm almost, I'm, I'm talking like you're two men, right? I'm talking like you're, you're, you're a man that's here on earth and you're a man that's got responsibilities here and you're an ambassador for Christ and you're to, you're to lead your family and you're to love your wife and you're to work hard and, 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 and you're, to, you're to share the gospel and you're to be a good citizen here in this place and yet at the same time, you know that your true citizenship, your true home is in heaven. It's spiritually, you're there. While your, while your body is here. But then we come to this table and we're reminded at this table that Christ's body is in Christ, but that spiritually he's here. And I want to be very careful in terms of the way I speak about the Lord's table. But I, but I can't help but have this feeling that as we come to this table in faith, as citizens of heaven, as we come to this as we come to this table in faith and we meet with Christ Jesus here and as we feast spiritually upon him, feast spiritually upon him and, and, and recognizing the, the fullness of who he is as, as the God-man, as, as the perfect sacrifice, as the great high priest, as we, as we meet here with him and, and we feast upon him, it almost feels like he's saying here, I'm, I'm bringing you a, a taste of home. Let me give you a taste of the banquet that awaits you in eternity. You ever traveled for a long time? You talk to people that are refugees or people that have left their home country and they go to other places, and there's something that just blesses them about tastes from home. I think about the, I think about the Jewish people whenever they were carried off into exile, and they were called to continue to worship there, and they were called to take up their instruments and to sing these songs, and they said, we can't. We're too sad. We're too far from home. We can't possibly do this here. And I, I can't help but think about what we do here as we gather together and we sing songs of praise to God. As we long to be home with him. 
as we know that there are treasures there that await us and, 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 and we feel the pressures of this world and we feel the tension, the tension that we feel between being good citizens here but true citizens of heaven and we feel that pulling in our flesh. It draws us to, to be caught up in all these earthly things and the discouragement that comes because we're not as holy as we think we should be and we're not as faithful as we think we should be and we're not where we believe we should be yet in this walk with Christ. And it's almost as though Christ meets us here and he says, I know exactly what you need and here it is, it's me. I give you myself. I give you the grace that you need today to continue. I need you the encouragement that you need to carry on. I give you exactly what you need to make sure that you don't fall short, that you carry on all the way until that final day when you are physically as you are today spiritually, when you are in heaven, holy and completely. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you, Father, for the reality that in Christ... We have not only been forgiven, but we have been eternally blessed. But Father, we do feel this tension. We feel the tension between living in this world physically and, and, and knowing that our true home is in heaven. So Father, as we, as we gather together at the Lord's table, as we seek to meet him here, Father, may we come in faith, not merely thinking backwards to the cross, but looking forward to his glorious return as our bodies groan, as all creation groans for his coming. Father, may this time be a strengthening, be an encouragement, be exactly what we need to carry on. Father God, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.